Blog Talk Radio. Hello, this is Peter Joseph, and you're listening to V Radio. Good evening, and welcome to this edition of V Radio. Tonight, we've got a great panel together to discuss what is uh, basically two different topics. In the first portion of the show, we're going to talk a little bit about this recent incident where this Tennessee man lost his home because he didn't pay a $75 fee. Uh, we'll get into the details about that. Um, and uh, in the second part of the show, which is pretty much going to be the most of the show, we're going to be talking on the topic of education uh, and also the issues of homeschooling and more specifically, what kind of social lessons do our children learn in public schools? So I'm going to take a moment first to introduce my panel. I'm going to start with Chibi since he so loves reintroducing himself, a longtime contributor to V Radio. Say hi, Chibi. Hi. Um, And secondly, Um, secondly, um, I'm also going to bring on a a fellow radio host from Ron Paul Radio, um, although I'm not with Ron Paul Radio anymore, or what are they calling themselves down there now, Bob? Isn't it like Revolution Broadcasting or something? Yes, that's correct. Revolutionbroadcasting.com, the website, of course. Well, since you're a new uh, person on my show, and... um, I would like to, first of all, have you uh, introduce yourself, and then we'll, we'll, I'll have a couple other questions for you to you know, explain some things to the listeners. But uh, start, start first with uh, introducing yourself. Well, I appreciate uh, you having me on tonight, Neil, and these are important topics that we're going to be talking about. A lot of uh, Zeitgeist people and others out there may have started their trip down the rabbit hole through 9-11 truth and all these other different sorts of uh, ideas that you've opened your eyes to. And a lot like Peter Joseph when he put together his film, shortly after these realizations, uh, I made the realization of what that control is and how how these uh, scumbags control us and and what they, they use. And if we remove the system in which they use, if we take away the levers in which they pull, if we remove the field in which they play on, uh, we will not have this problem. So that, in combination with being an organic gardener, a student of uh, so many different things, uh, I decided to do a radio program, and my show is called Truth Be Told Radio. It's at theylie.com, because they're not telling the truth. They're not telling the truth about abundance. They're keeping us in a scarcity-based sort of consciousness. And it's time for others out there to wake up to this, and when we get into the stories tonight, uh, I hope to shed some light on some of the aspects of this that I found absolutely fascinating and insightful. Can you give the website URL to your show again? Sure. When they're not telling the truth, they lie. And my website is theylie.com. Got it. Okay. Um, now, what I wanted to ask you is I ask most of my new panelists, uh, what was the precipice for you? What brought you out of the box? What what got you basically from being a you know your normal you know kid or whatever focused on whatever you know video games or whatever other things that people distract themselves with and actually thinking about you know things politically you know going on in our world? What got you being an activist would be the best quickest way. Sure, and and there's not one thing per se. It's it's a combination of things that led to me being an activist. My radio career started before I had the passion to wake others up and the understanding of what was really going on. So I did radio at at 16 years old in Miami on an AM station with the longest-running talk show host at the time. I I would co-host weekly, and I I did my own show at some point. And at that time, it was 
it was very fluffy. You know, we, we talked about sort of the mindless sort of things that you would expect uh, from sort of generic talk radio of the 19, late 1990s, early 2000s. And eventually I, I got out of that sort of uh, radio environment and for a while as I went off to school, realized that these corporate conditioning camps in the mainstream media were, were lying uh, and that there was more to the story. Uh, and that more to the story reinvoked my passion to broadcast and get the message out. So that's really where I stand today is uh, this newfound passion uh, because of becoming aware to so many different things, like the fact that we have the potential, for instance, for chaos, but on the other hand, we have the potential for abundance and a, a paradigm shift into a golden age. And that sort of understanding ins inspires, I think, all of us to take a stance uh, and to make sure that history knows that your voice was heard uh, and that you didn't stay into uh, the sort of sheeple mentality that's going to do nothing but head us towards chaos. Excellent. Um, all right, uh, Mr. Reed, uh, please go ahead and reintroduce yourself to our listeners. Meaning Jack. <laughs> Did he get disconnected? Yeah, of course. I've got to oh, oh, take it off mute. Uh, <laughs> I love everything that Bob just said. Excellent. Everything. And, and I love you too, Jack. I love you. A lot of what he just said was what uh, we in Community Planet uh, are working on. That's communityplanet.org for anybody who wants to check it out. And uh, we're focused on the solution because it's, uh, it's so easy to be a critic because the systems are just irreparably broken, and uh, so now it's time to implement a, a solution, and as Bob said, you know, the resources are there to do this, and now we just have to have the will to do this and to get people together and show people that there can be a different way of living together that's for the highest good of all and for all life on the planet, and that the problem has been this every person for themselves way we go about life on the planet. And the topic today will feed perfectly into that. All right. Thank you, Jack. And uh, for those of you who would like to hear some more about Community Planet, I have actually several shows with Jack Reed where we discuss this and read from his book. Uh, so you know, be sure to check out uh, those interviews and many others at vradio.org. That's v-radio.org. Um, and uh, also, uh, to once again, tell everybody, I want to say thank you for the support, you know, in the emergency that I had recently. You guys are the reason I'm going to try to do a show at least every other day, if not every day from now on. Um, essentially, at this point, from now on, I am an employee of the listeners of V-Radio. Uh, the donation suggestion that was given to me was that, you know, even if every listener just donates like a dollar fifty a month, then everything as far as, you know, me being able to continue to do this as often as I have been and now even more often will be covered. I really appreciate all the help that I have been getting. And this does not mean that I obviously don't appreciate it when people donate more. I'm trying to make this as easy on everybody else as possible. Um, so thank you, everybody, who has supported B-Radio. And I'm just going to continue to do this kind of like a public broadcasting station, so to speak, paid for by the listeners. And I'm going to do my best to 
bring you as much quality programming as I can. Um, speaking of which, uh, one of tonight's topics was actually brought up because of uh, some you know, feedback from the listeners. A listener brought me this, uh, you know, essentially this shocking news story about this poor fellow in Tennessee losing his home. Um, I'm going to encourage you to please continue to do that. Uh, add your, you know, if you go to vradio.org, you can add me to your Facebook. You can add me to your my, you know, my MySpace. Um, you can add me to Skype. Anytime you get an important link, something that you think that you know, people in the Zeitgeist Movement, the Venus Project, or even just generally freedom-minded people would like to have reported on, you know, from our perspective, essentially, um, please do not hesitate to give me these links and keep them coming. I can't promise that I will use all of them, uh, but it, it does help me uh, basically to you know, keep the, you know, the show flowing. One of the things that is a problem about doing a show every day, because I tried to do it again and it's, it's really tough, is that it, essentially when you have radio personalities, they tend to have a whole team of people whose entire job is to give them something to talk about. So these people that you see on the radio every day, although they're reading it to you, they're probably reading research you know, and pre-prepared statements that were given by somebody else entirely who you don't even know about and probably never will. So if you have any kind of topics that you'd like to see covered, if you have you know, any information, news stories, things of that nature that you'd like us to discuss on B-Radio in our open panel um, conversation you know, system that we've been using since the beginning, um, please don't hesitate to give me those links. You can also email them at vtv at v-radio.org. So that being said, um, I'm going to go ahead and uh, read one of the articles that was on this issue, and then we're going to discuss it here in open forum. So you can follow along with me at the V Radio blog. If you go to v-radio.org and click blog, it will take you to my blogger site. Um, and uh, there you can read along with this article. The second part of the article is actually a blog article of my own where I quote a couple of other sources of information, but I, I wrote it myself, so um, be sure to check that out. Here we go. Um, if uh, the panelists, if you're capable of it, go, go ahead and mute. It makes the sound quality better when I read. Um, Tonight on V Radio, we're going to talk about two topics over two hours. In the first hour, we'll be having a commentary on the subject of the recent incident in Obion County, Tennessee. Apparently, in the area outside of the main city limits, you have to pay a $75 fee to get protection for your home from house fires. Quoting here from the news report on this subject, I gave the link to this particular article. Now, imagine your home catches fire, but the local fire department won't respond, then watches it burn. That's exactly what happened uh, to a local family tonight. A local neighborhood is furious after firefighters watched as an Obion County, Tennessee home burned to the ground. The homeowner, Gene Cranick, said he offered to pay whatever it would take for firefighters to put out the flames, but was told it was too late. They wouldn't do anything to stop his house from burning. Each year, Obion County residents must pay $75 if they want fire protection from the city of South Fulton but the Cranicks didn't pay. The mayor said if homeowners don't pay, they're out of luck. The fire went, out for, went on for hours because garden hoses just wouldn't put it out. It wasn't until the fire spread to, the, to a neighbor's property that anyone would respond. Turns out the neighbor had paid the fee. Here's a quote from Gene Cranick. I thought they'd come out and put it out, even if you hadn't paid your $75, but I was wrong. 
Because of that, not much, much is left of Cranick's house. They called 911 several times, and initially the South Fulton Fire Department would not come. The Cranicks told 911 they would pay firefighters whatever the cost to stop the fire before it spread to their house. Another thing about this that was revealed later is the fire actually started in a couple of barrels, and it took like an hour for it to spread to their home. This is a little piece of information that wasn't in this article. Um, when I called... Uh, when I called and told them that, my grandson had already called there, and he thought that when I got here, I could get something done. I couldn't. This is from Paulette Cranick. It was only when a neighbor's field caught fire, a neighbor who had paid the county fire service fee, that the department responded. Gene Cranick asked the fire chief to make an exception and save his home. The chief wouldn't. We asked him why. He wouldn't talk to us and called police to have us escorted off the property. Police never came, but firefighters quickly left the scene. Meanwhile, the Cranick home continued to burn. We asked the mayor of South Fulton if the chief could have made an exception. The mayor says, Anybody that's not in the city of South Fulton, that the service we offer, either they accept it or they don't. This is David Crocker, the mayor of that city. Friends and neighbors said it's a cruel and dangerous city policy, but the Cranicks don't blame the firefighters themselves. They blame the people in charge. Um, there's a quote here, from again, from Paulette Cranick. They're doing their job, said of the firefighters. They're doing what they are told. It's not their fault. To give you an idea of just how intense the feelings got in this situation, soon after the fire department returned to the station, the Obion County Sheriff's Department said someone went there and assaulted one of the firefighters. Now, uh, Olbermann uh, actually had this gentleman on for an interview afterward, wherein he described how the whole thing went down. For some reason, I put the cold bear down here, but it was Olbermann. The interview was conducted with the man sitting in front of the rubble that was his house. I have to ask, this man offered to pay on the spot. Why the hell didn't they let him do this? What difference would it have made if he had paid right then and there? Two dogs and the family cat also died in this fire. So that concludes the first article. I'm going to bring on Chibi first to discuss this subject, and then we will once again go to each panelist. Uh, yeah, whenever I saw this, uh, actually I wasn't really even surprised. It's sort of that sort of attitude you would expect from the firefighters. We're just doing our job, you know, Duncan headed us, which is sort of true. Uh, I mean, it's m maybe morally defensible from their standpoint. So I guess it'd be the mayor and the fire chief that, well, I don't know. Um, either way, it's, it's a really sad situation. I, I thought what was so audacious about it, like that they would actually be standing there with the truck. I mean, I saw the video. There's just literally shows the truck and then there's the house burning and the firemen just standing there just watching. It's like I was waiting for him to get out a bag of marshmallows. And, you know, <laughs> I, I, mean, it was just, I couldn't believe it. Um, I, I had to laugh, actually. I mean, it was not like the ha-ha laugh, but, you know. It was funny because it was sad. Sometimes some things are like that, and I agree with you. It, it, it when they, I'll get into that actually during my own comments because I, I did watch the Olbermann interview, and he reveals a lot more about what took place. But I'm going to move on first to um, Bob, Mr. Tuskin. What do you have so far on this issue? Well, to me, this is a great example of money getting in the way of common sense. When you have scarcity and money controlling our everyday thoughts and conditioning us to not want to grant uh, the most basic service that they very well could have uh, done, 
but uh, they simply, because of a debt-based token of enslavement, did not want to oblige him. It's a perfect example that touches on many ideas in my head when you think of uh, the fact that there's hungry people in the world, and you walk into a grocery store, but yet there's tons of food uh, in these stores, in these markets. Um, that sort of contrast never ceases to amaze me. And to think that one of these firemen did not break free from that conditioning, it, it amazes me. Uh, to, to see uh, that uh, the biggest part of the story here to me, folks, and, and the biggest part of this is the fireman's reaction. You know, the fireman not watching somebody's house burn down. What's going on in your head if you're the fireman? You know, oh, this is what these people get because they didn't turn in the Federal Reserve notes or, you know, what's going through their head? You know, and that justification is the same justification we've heard from people that are just taking orders, participating in genocide. What's next, folks? This is the classic example of scarcity-based mind control affecting the most common sense actions in life. You know, one of the funny things about that, Bob, is that it's not only that there's plenty of food, you know, to, to go back to your initial analogy, it's that a great deal of that food gets thrown out. You know, um, it, it, when they talk about the fact that supposedly, you know, we don't have the ability to produce food, to feed everybody, we throw out so much food. Uh, the fast food restaurants in particular, they, they just throw out tons of it. Um, you know, but as far as uh, back to the original concept, you know, um, I'm, I definitely agree with everything that you stated here. So I'm going to move on to Jack. So, Jack, what do you think? Unmute, Jack. Exactly. I was over there fixing my organic salad, so I had to rush back to unmute. Um, everything that Bob said, and you know, I, you know, Bob and I seem to be on the same page here. Uh, first of all, I just wanted to make a comment about news stories in general. Is my, my first reaction to any news story, although this one seems to have a video to support it, is that um, I virtually, I have a hard time believing anything that's presented in, in the media anymore in terms of representing all sides of the story and what the situation truly is, because I think the deeper story here in what's being said is not the partisan uh, kind of thing about, about uh, whether the fireman should or shouldn't have put out the fire, whether the person was, uh, the family was uh, negligent. You know, I think something can be said for both sides, but the deeper story, the bigger story is what Bob was saying is what's happened to our society? Uh, this every person for themselves society when something like this uh, can happen? And it reminds me of, of uh, because Bob touched on the consciousness of the people involved, the, the firefighters, it reminds me a lot of when I went into the Air Force Academy as <clears throat> not the most patriotic person to ever go there, but um, uh, that I saw the people transformed uh, who, who were these cadets who were out of high school and and to the point where uh, they were talking about how much they wished the war in Vietnam was still going on when they when they could get out of flight school so they could go over there and bomb some villages. It's like the disconnect that, that people can have 
it would be just interesting to have interviewed some of the firefighters to see where that disconnect was, because if there wasn't the disconnect, then somebody would have said, hey, you know, let's just, let's, let's just put out this fire. That's actually one of the most shocking aspects of it, is you've got to imagine what you're thinking about, okay? You know, you're not an innocent bystander, you know, who has no ability to impact the situation. The funny thing is, these are the things that you learned when, you, when, I, when I studied this, this story further, was the neighbors were so, you know, upset about it, they would get out their garden hoses to try to put out this fire. You know, that everybody was doing everything they could. I mean, and it, was, and it was just, it was too much. It wasn't possible. You know, and I just imagine, you know, it, it's, it's bad enough that, you know, you don't show up. Then you do show up, and you have the ability to put out the fire, and you can, in some fashion, because a certain fee was not paid, justify to yourself to allow these people's lives to go up in flames. I mean, they didn't die, but they lost everything. You know, one of the things that they described was that, you know, there were family heirlooms in this house that went all the way back to the great-grandparents. You know, uh, there, there was, as I pointed out earlier, there were two dogs and a cat. You know, yeah, that, belonged to the, that belonged to the family children. You know, uh, I just, I, I don't understand exactly, you know, how could you do that? How could you just sit there and let that happen? You know, it's, people don't really think about it because it doesn't happen to you. But I've, I've been around people who have lost their, their lives, essentially, to, to house fire. And if you're not lucky enough to have insurance, you know, it's everything you own, gone. Everything you own, gone. But, I mean, think about that. You know, especially in our society where your, you know, your material possessions are so important to your survival, then they just all go up in flames. You know, that's, that's basically the, the, the serious issue here is that this isn't just about a guy's house going up. This is about his TV, you know, his food, his, you know, his furniture, you know, everything that the man owned. You know, what are these people going to do now? Over $75. You know, this is the part that I don't understand. What difference would it have made if he had just paid the fee on site? On site. What would have been the big deal? You got your money. You know, <laughs> the oppressive state has its money now. You know, and one of the reasons that I bring this up is that you have to remember that anarcho-capitalists in particular, like, you know, the most capitalists of the capitalists, um, suggest that all of these things should be privatized. You know, if your own government, your own local government, um, which, you know, that's the other thing they pointed out is that the, the mayor who set these policies is a Republican. Um, when your own local government is willing to stand there, you know, because you didn't pay $75 and let your house burn down, what would happen if it was a private company? You know, are, are, we, you know, are we trying to think that for a moment that, well, first of all, that any private company could operate a fire service for $75 a year and make a profit? There's no way. If it was privatized, you know, then it would definitely have been a higher fee, if not some form of monthly fee. Um, and on top of that, you know, they absolutely would just sit there and let it burn. You know, private companies not in any way obligated to do that. So, you know, and when, when people say, oh, well, that wouldn't happen, I'm just like, I I'm sorry, man. We we've seen how that works. You know, when you see, like, when Bechtel, as was pointed out in Zeitgeist and in uh, Blue Gold World Water Wars, Bechtel owned the water. Um, uh, the, basically, Bechtel owned the water in a company and you know in a country, and they were more than willing to turn off the water, even though that meant everybody in question wouldn't have any water. You know, how can you even think about that? 
You know, I've, and we've had people who do this. You know, they throw people out of their homes. They turn off their utilities. There's any number of ways that people own life. If you remember the show uh, that I did a long time ago about that blog, it was called uh, The Morality of Owning Life. Uh, you can find that show in the archives at bradio.org. So, um, all right, now, Chibi, you had something to say. Go ahead. Uh, yeah, it was more of a response to Bob's, but it was actually funny listening to you talk just now about the $75. Uh, it kind of reminds me of the scenario of the drug killing where somebody, you know, over $50 worth of drugs or something, and then they have the money, but it doesn't matter. They're going to kill them over the principal. I don't know. For some reason, that uh, <laughs> seemed to fit Very poetic. <laughs> uh, but, um, uh, actually, the, what I was thinking about the firemen, you know, what, what was going through their heads, how could they do this and that sort of thing. And I was thinking about it. Uh, I move mobile homes, uh, trailers, basically, for a living. And there's been times where we've had to do repossessions where, um, you know, the police show up sometimes. Yeah. And people got to go, and we, you know, hook up to it and take it away. And uh, it's not burning it to the ground, but... Um, I could say it's somewhat similar. I mean, it is a family losing their home, getting thrown out. Um, in that case, it is different. I mean, it's it's not that I have the ability to take the title from the bank and give it back to the people, right? Um, and if I didn't do it, somebody else would. And, of course, I have to pay my bills. So, it, I mean, there's plenty of ways to rationalize it. Either way, though, uh, I always end up feeling really shitty about it in that sort of position. Um, it, we don't do that sort of thing often, but when we do, uh, it upsets me quite a bit. So. I have a hard time. I'm pretty sure that the firemen did feel bad about it, um, but we're probably also in a position where they felt uh, helpless to do much about it because, I mean, looking at how the story went, um, they weren't allowed to go. I mean, it wasn't like one guy could jump in and just take the truck and say, F you guys, I'm going, you know, like some hero off in the... Uh, that's not going to happen. So when they finally did show up, this other house was already pretty much burned. Uh, I mean, from what I remember, when it right after it shows the fire truck, uh, these people's house was already halfway gone, you know. So it was sort of like a, at that point they could easily just say, well, it's, it's too late anyway. Um, well, um, there was actually something really quick that I want to point out because I forgot to bring this up in my statement. Um, on the Olbermann interview, they revealed that uh, when the fire department did show up, to put out the neighbor's uh, field, the neighbor is like, look, man, I've, I've already harvested. I don't have anything over there. Just take the water and put it on this house. He tried to get them, you know, to just like, you know, I paid for it. Go, you know, go put out the fire in this guy's house. And, and they still said no. But go ahead and finish what you were saying, Chidi. Oh, well, no, that, yeah, I, I could see that. It's hard to say with these sort of stories, you know, you don't know how much you're missing and what other kind of bitterness could have been going on between the the homeowner and the, I mean, either way, it's not justifiable. That's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying uh, I'm sure there's very complex things going on here. It's not just as black and white, I'm sure. Oh, of course. All right, Bob, you had a statement too? Well, to me, it brings up the old Milgram experiment. You guys know about the Milgram experiment, right? Uh, basically, they, they take two participants. One participant is supposedly being electrically shocked. Uh, and every time they get the question wrong, the shock is supposed to increase and, and be uh, more and more lethal as it goes. Uh, and basically, because people are given the orders to continue with the experiments, they will do things 
as in a minister, lethal dosages of, of shocking these people uh, just because they're told to do this uh, by somebody of authority. So you have to understand, folks, the, the firefighters, they've been conditioned uh, from the scarcity-based hierarchy mentality of control. So they have their high-ups tell them, you know, no, you can't do this because of some bureaucratic, uh, non-logical, sort of ridiculous price system oriented idea, but because they're so conditioned, and when we talk about this conditioning, we look at our education system as a big part of this conditioning that happens from an early age, and that, that takes us to next hour, uh, which we'll, we'll get to, so stay tuned to that, folks. But uh, really, it, it, it to me, is it, a product of conditioning, and the, the best example that I give of this conditioning, of scarcity, and what it does to our mentality is an example that I... Uh, came up with uh, through my interpretation of a Pavlov study. Uh, and Pavlov takes the chicken, uh, a group of chickens, rather. The only reason this is funny is I've, I've told this story quite a few times after you told it to me on, on V Radio, but go ahead and finish. <laughs> All right, well, so, so now you know where, where Neil got it from, folks. Uh, but it, it, it doesn't matter who, who tells you about it because the story uh, is, is, it remains true. Um, and the principle is more important here, folks. Uh, and that is that when you provide these chickens with an abundance of food and water, so whenever they're hungry or thirsty, they go to the dispenser of, of food or water, and it's there, uh, that their behaviors are observed, and, and they act somewhat normal, and, and they act like, you know, sort of chickens uh, would act with abundance. Now, when you observe their behaviors, when you take away that constant abundance of food and water, and you then put some back and then take it away and you mani manipulate the amount of food, just like we're being manipulated uh, with our current distribution system, their behaviors change. Only then did they hoard, steal, uh, and all these sort of aberrant behaviors come from them. Uh, so that to me is, is sort of at the root cause of this issue, uh, and it even is shown in symptoms like firefighters watching somebody's house get burnt, uh, just like... Jack said, where is human decency? You know, if I was, and, and I'm glad to hear that the neighbors were taking garden hoses because, you know, where is, where is your mind at uh, to, to witness something like this take place and to not to take a stand? Uh, I certainly agree with that. Um, you can probably still find the uh, Colbert, um, I'm saying it wrong again. Uh, anyway, you can probably still find the interview that uh, Olbermann did with this guy. Um, yeah, Olbermann, I always fuck that up. Anyway, um, and uh, he actually he conducts the interview, and, and the guy's like literally sitting on a, a lawn chair in front of the rubble of his house during the course of the interview. Um, and uh, I, I put it on my Facebook. You should probably be able to find it there. Um, any closing statement from you, Jack, before we move on to the next topic? <coughs> yes. The... To me, the, the danger in stories like this is it gets people focused, uh, to me, on, on the wrong issues. Because before this fire ever occurred, there was a broken system. And so then when something happens and something could be said for both sides, like, you know, if you're going to get insurance, you get insurance. You don't try and get insurance after the fact. So they can play off that side. They can play off the other side in terms of the absurdity of, of that notion when there is a real crisis. But before all of that happened, 
this thing was, this whole situation was being played out in a broken system, the system that Bob talked about in, in his introduction, that this, the political and economic systems are broken, and when we have the insurance companies get involved and we have all this other stuff getting involved, it's like we just need to do something about the system itself because if rational people got together and said, you know, and sat down, people with resources and power and the means to do it and said, how can we have the world work for everyone and for all life on the planet, then we would be there. We would be doing that. But the powers that be do not have that as their agenda so it's up to a group of people to get together and to demonstrate what that would look like and how that would work. And to me, that's always the bigger story. And when we're talking about these things, is okay, it's obviously broken. But what can we do about it? Yeah, that's actually an excellent point that Shidi just brought up in our in our chat here. Uh, is that we also have to remember, you know, that here in the, the Venus Project, particularly, we kind of, we need to address the, the root cause. You know, the fact that there is even a cost to putting fires out in the first place. Um, now, Chibi, did you want to comment on that a little bit before I move on? Uh, I think you were about to word it just fine. But, yeah, I was just saying that uh, I, the whole point of my previous rant was I, I didn't want to see us getting to where we're just demonizing the firefighters or the local county or whatever. I mean, that's what media is going to do is they'll point the finger and, oh, yeah, it's just these bad firefighters. It's like with police brutality, just a couple bad cops or, you know, and then it goes away and there's no real problem. No, it's just this, this was just a case gone bad. And that's why I think it's more important to look at the root of the problem because, you know, it doesn't really get us anywhere to blame the firefighters and say, well, what bad people they were. Well, look where they come from, you know, of course. Right. I say the same thing generally when I'm trying to tell people that Hating police officers is not really you know, going to really get us anywhere. <laughs> but to recognize the environment, because you're shaped by, shaped by your environment, the environment that the average police officer interacts in. But the quick point I would make is, you know, like why are cops, you know, a jerk to you on the side of the road? Why do they seem tense? Why, you know, why are they, you know, so authoritative when they pull you over? Well, that's because statistically, that's also where most cops get shot, and that's why they're. You know, uh, their environment is, you know, essentially set the precedent for how they will behave in that circumstance because it may save their life. And we have to remember that these people have kids too. So, um, you know, they have families that they're thinking about every time they pull somebody over. So that's just something to think about. I mean, I'd rather that there wasn't, you know, we live in a world where it wasn't even necessary for any of them to do that. But you have to remember that everybody is created in some fashion or another by their environment. So... Anyway, um, that basically concludes the first part of the show as far as that topic. I knew it wasn't really going to be a, um, as big of a um, topic as the next one because the next one's kind of a full blog. Uh, I was originally making planning on making this the entire show, but uh, this fire thing came up, and I, I definitely wanted to address it a little bit on V-Radio. So uh, once again, um, we're going to move on now to the second topic. Um, and ironically, Chibi, you're actually uh, inadvertently one of the progenitors of this topic because it was due to a comment you made on my Facebook <laughs> that this topic uh, became, came to my uh, attention as far as it being something we should talk about. Um, and that is that um, I had linked a picture to my daughter getting on the bus 
for her first day at school. Um, and at least in the beginning anyway, you know, the, the first few grades, I don't really feel that I'm going to need to homeschool her. So, you know, I, I shared that moment with all the people. And this is on my, I'm sorry, my personal Facebook, meaning the Neil Kierden one, not the VTV one. And uh, so he, you know, makes kind of a grumbly comment, mm, you know, public schools. And then another one of my friends who's not activist-minded at all, you know, pipes in with, well, you got to send them to public schools because if not, they're not going to be well socially adjusted. And, you know, I've seen it firsthand. And then my brother, uh, who's extremely religious, he's a, a Christian engineer I told you about, pipes in with, well, you know, there's no statistics to support that, you know, kids who are homeschooled are not, you know, socially well adjusted. Um, I eventually commented in the conversation I said, I was like, you know, um, in fact, here, let me just go ahead and read what I have here in the blog. Uh, recently on my personal Facebook, I linked a photo to my daughter getting on the bus for her first day of school. Thing is how on my personal Facebook, I have ZM, you know, Zeitgeist Movement members and my more day-to-day non-activist-minded friends. A conversation ensued because of them. Chibi <laughs> made a comment about public schools. Then I stated I am considered homes homeschooling when they get older. One of my other friends said that I should not do that. As homeschool, you know, schooled children are socially deficient. My brother, who is very religious and homeschools himself, pointed out there was no little to, little to no actual data to support the idea that kids or homeschooled have any sort of social problems. And this got me to thinking. I didn't want the conversation derailed into talking about homeschooling. However, I did end up commenting on what sort of social adjustments children get. Basically, I commented on what I learned socially when I was in school. Um, well, first of all, I learned that if you wear Wrangler jeans rather than guest jeans, you're worthless. You know, as in you as a person are worthless than kids who come from families who are lucky enough to be able to afford the jeans that are generally $30 to $40 more expensive, despite the fact that the only real difference between these jeans is the logo. I've used that, this, this particular comparison so many times. And, and the reason why, and I, I know I repeat it, is because it's probably the most absurd, honestly, of any fashion nightmares I've ever seen, because it really is a logo. That's it. It's a logo. And it's not even a very big logo. It's just the symbol on the side of your freaking pants. Um, and and the, your entire social impact is totally different in school if you, if you wear these other pants. I'm going to go on here. I learned similar things about every major fashion issue. I remember how important your fashion was to your worth socially. It impacted your entire image. I remember it went so far as to even include where you purchased the items in question. Nike Air Jordans that did not have the tag on them that proved that they were purchased at Foot Locker were not as prestigious as those purchased at Kmart or another department store. Why? Well, the ones purchased at Foot Locker generally costed more, so they wouldn't want you cheating to get some street cred when your mother bought them at another store. Girls would not date you if your fashion was not in order. And in the city I grew up in, I remember very clearly kids getting shot over their pump shoes triple fat goose jacket, or leather trench coats. People wanted these symbols of worth so much they were willing to kill for them. I also learned a great deal about the social hierarchy system of popular versus unpopular. If you kiss the right ass, listen to the right music, dress the right way, then you were well on your way to becoming quote-unquote popular. Being physically attractive didn't hurt, but it didn't necessarily matter. But it was more than that. 
you had to willingly participate in the system of the pecking order. Otherwise, you could be targeted with endless harassment, ridicule, and even violence. Okay, I'm going to pause here, and we're probably going to reread that last part because I want to talk about the, the fact that the, the fashion thing is uh, so important in the, in the school system and that this is an example of the social adjustment you learn when you go to public school. I'm going to start with you, Chidi. Um, I don't know what your school experience was like, but do you, do you know what I'm talking about, obviously, about how within the school system when you're kind of forced to be around other kids, you know, who you may not necessarily get along with, where, you know, this, this issue, you know, this effect comes in. You, do you want to talk about your own experiences with this or comment on it? Uh, yeah, I had a very awkward uh, school life. Uh, I won't go into all the things, but as far as fashion is concerned, I, I can remember a few specifics. One was uh, I, I wore these socks that were, I mean, they were adult socks. Uh, basically, most of my clothing would come from agape houses and places like that where you just got used clothes that, that worked fine, but, you know, obviously didn't fit the fashion thing, as you pointed out, which did get me uh, into trouble from time to time. But one I remember specifically was uh, the socks I would wear were really big and and, you know, it's like knee-high socks, and I wouldn't necessarily pull them up to my knee, but they, they don't rest at the ankle either, right? So they'd be, whatever, crumped up halfway, maybe halfway up my, my calf or something. And, uh, and I, I can remember getting picked on for that a lot, just the socks, like that specific thing that somebody would make fun of. Because your socks were a certain distance up your leg that they weren't supposed to be here or something. And very odd, very odd thing. Um, but that's a reason to be cruel to someone. <laughs> right. And I think a lot of that's just reflective of our culture. Um, it's the same thing in adulthood, and kids, uh, they pick up on that quick, I guess, you know, between the advertisements and the kind of things they see when they look around them. I think they're just sort of absorbing all that and forming their own social groups just as close as they can to what they think is normal, you know, based on what they see in the adult life and on television, and, you know, things like that. Right. Now, Bob? Yes. Uh, would you like to comment on the issue of public schools and how they kind of enforce the fashion issue? Well, let's start with the, the fashion side to this. And the most um, important uh, person that comes to mind when it comes to fashion and conditioning people to, you know, sort of live in, in these sorts of... Uh, I don't know how you would describe it. It's, it's kind of like ego-based, sort of materialistic-based mind control. Uh, and the most uh, recognizable figure in all this, of course, is Edward Bernays uh, from the perception control of the early 21st century. And Edward Bernays, of course, was one of the people that realized that if we could play on people's emotion and, and get them to you know, sort of attach certain emotions and, and thoughts uh, together that uh, we could get them to be, fit into this uh, more materialistic sort of mentality. So back in the day, people would wear socks um, because socks would keep their feet warm and they served the purpose. And you'd buy socks uh, that were the best quality socks you could buy that were the most practical and pragmatic you could wear. Uh, and what Bernays realized is that if we could get people to wear socks because uh, of their scarcity-based mind control uh, desire to be a part of a pecking order in which they somehow 
degrade others for for their sock uh, wearing, well, we could also get them to continue to want to buy the more expensive shoes, as was mentioned. Um, I came up uh, in a fairly a well-to-do family and never had to receive the second-hand clothing. But even then, within myself, I had many struggles uh, with, yeah, on one hand, not really caring uh, about this, but on the other hand, having my parents be the ones to push that on me. Uh, and that's probably one of the reasons why I've rebelled from that. So imagine going to school and, and having your parents uh, try to push you into the pop culture of the schools and, and have your parents, you know, and try to indoctrinate you into that and then have your parents look down on you because you're not fitting in the cool kid sort of mode. That's also very traumatic for children. Um, and it really touches on education in general, which is a thing uh, that I'd love to get into uh, when we talk about this uh, in the show today. Okay, Jack. Sounds like you're going to have to unmute again, Jack. Yes. Um, <laughs> I, uh, you know, that, that Bob and I part ways here a little bit because, not philosophically, but uh, <laughs> in terms of the class system maybe, because I grew up in a probably lower middle class family, and uh, my mother knew nothing about fashion, so she was of no help. And, and I, just, I just remember being teased on, on what I wore because I had two other older brothers, so I wore hand-me-downs during elementary school. But I can remember the shock of going from sixth grade, where we were all wearing T-shirts, to, to seventh grade, where nobody told me that we were they were all wearing button-down Ivy League. You know, nobody told me that the fashion model changed between sixth and seventh grades. <laughs> and so I endured teasing all year because I thought, okay, well, I'm used to the teasing, even though it was painful, for, for what I'm wearing, but, but what if I came to school with some new shirts and then, and then the, the classmates would say, oh, Jack's got some new shirts. And then, you know, so I was uncomfortable either way. And it wasn't until summer vacation that year that I figured it out and came to school the next year with shirts. And summer vacation allowed everybody to forget that I was not fashion conscious. The real lesson here is that, uh, you know, so much of this has to do with with communication as the basic issue uh, and people's own, their, their ability to communicate within themselves and, and with other people. And that's, you know, as we get into it, to me, that's really what's lacking in the educational system is very few places other than some uh, very progressive uh, private schools are really focusing on the key issue that we need to focus on, which is that communication, first of all, with ourselves and then with other people. And this is one of the things that was lacking in that story with, uh, that we just heard about the, about the house burning down, too. I mean, somewhere the communication was lost. 
We're definitely going to talk about that also because, you know, it, it's also to say it's not that it's part of the curriculum necessarily that, uh, that, that they're intentionally creating this situation within the public school system, but they don't really do enough to stop it. And it's one of the things that's actually uh, one of the things that is the reason why, for example, many schools are switching to uniforms because this issue becomes a real distraction for the students. You know, it becomes something that you're thinking about rather than what you're actually supposed to be there doing. Um, and it ends up being something that you can taunt each other about. You know, I remember, for example, you know, if, you're, if your daughter, like they were explaining to me the lunch system, you know, if, you're, if your daughter or son happens to have free lunch because you happen to be on some kind of support, they don't give the children any kind of card anymore. The, uh, basically, there's a, a, a sign that has pictures on it, you know, that, that, that only the cashier sees so that your child can secretly get their free lunch so that they don't get attacked by any children who go, ha, ha, you're on welfare, you get free lunch, you know, um, as if it's the child's fault, that, you know, as far as what their financial system or their parents is. Um, and I focused again on, you know, this was, this was true in low-income areas and high-income areas. I grew up in both. And uh, when I was in Pontiac, you know, I was not kidding about people getting shot so that people could steal their shoes, you know, or their jackets. You know, that, that's very real. Um, and, but when I went to the, the, ironically, when I went to the higher-income places, I was under a lot more stress. Because although you weren't in as much in as much physical danger, those people will not leave you alone. You were basically under psychological attack the entire time if you were not towing the party line. And, and we'll definitely get into that um, a little bit more now as we move into the next section. And this has to do with the essentially the, the you know because remember once again this is all about them suggesting that you have to go to these public schools to become socially adjusted. I, for one, don't want my children to be socially adjusted to fashion, um, and at least not in that degree. If they like something, they can wear it. Um, now, before I move on, Jack, was there anything further you wanted to say? It just occurred to me. I think I might have just interrupted you. Was there anything else you needed to say? Well, I'd like to, if we can't do, again, we need to address the whole educational system, but. Uh, for the reason that you just mentioned, within the current system, I'd actually probably endorse the idea of, of uniforms just because there are so many kids who, who are shy or who are bullied or whatever, and it would, it would level the, the playing field. Again, it's, it's a... It's putting band-aids on the problem rather than addressing the cause, because if the cause is addressed, then we don't have to go there. But within the current systems that we have now, for the reasons that you said, I've endorsed uniforms. I can't really disagree with you, to be honest. Um, now, uh, all that being said, uh, I guess we're going to move on here. I'm going to move on to the, the power structure you learned now. This, is, this actually plays onto a project that Chibi and I are slowly working on that will eventually become a show unto itself, and it has to do with you know, the, the social hierarchy issues that, that people don't really realize are going on with them. Um, now, okay, so I'm going to go ahead and comment. I also learned a great deal about the social hierarchy system of popular versus unpopular. If you kiss the right ass, listen to the right music, dress the right way, then you were well on your way to becoming popular. Being physically attractive didn't hurt, but it didn't necessarily matter. 
but it was more than that. You had to willingly participate in the system of pecking order. Otherwise, you could be targeted with endless harassment, ridicule, and even violence. Those in power would punish you if you did not help them keep the order of things in line. There are kids you can earn brownie points by harassing or hurting, and if you do not participate, you would find yourself in the same shoes as the poor kid who was the target. Now, don't get caught listening to music that is not approved by the social system. Don't get caught hanging out with the wrong people. Don't get caught dating someone who is not on the list of those approved by the clique. Sounds a bit fascist, doesn't it? Some of these kids would spy on you like the KGB to be sure you were towing the party line. Somehow, I don't really think this is a system I would want my children to be well-adjusted to. Now, this is uh, basically the major aspect about this is what I was getting at, is that the social system that you learn when you're in school is that there's a certain thing, certain things are expected out of you. And that includes hurting people who are outside of that system. And I remember very distinctly, uh, for example, during the brief time that I was Christian, I was also a pacifist. And I was a tall, big kid, even when I was, you know, uh, you know younger. And so kids who were looking for somebody to bully who knew I was a pacifist, you know, would find me and cause problems with me. And at one point, this guy, he, he sits down, you know, at our lunch table, and he just starts wailing on me. And my friends, you know, these are my friends, they don't do anything to intervene. And I later asked them, they're like, man, I'm really sorry. I just didn't want him to start on me next, you know. Um, and the funny thing is, I could tell they were remorseful, but they were also afraid. You know, they didn't want this guy to, you know, to pick on them. So they were kind of forced to, to go along with, the, you know, what he was trying to socially force them to do, which was either be part of the problem or not be part of any kind of solution. You know, as is typical, I don't, you know, I've never really followed social rules all that well, and my religious beliefs changed. This same kid ended up, you know, <laughs> being at the other side of my wrath, so to speak, because I got so tired of him showing up. You know, he'd show up every day to, to push me around when I got out of school, and we're going to get into the issue of violence later, but I ended up having to beat the crap out of this guy right in the lunchroom in order to get him to leave me alone because the school system was either incapable unwilling or incompetent and, and unable to handle it. And we'll get into the violence thing later, but when it comes to the, the, the fascist way that the, the social hierarchies are enforced in school, when I said don't get caught listening to the wrong music, I remember I liked the band Bon Jovi. Somebody found out about that. I got taunted about that for a month. Because well, I understand that now. <laughs> because it wasn't, it wasn't something that was approved by the clique. You, know, you have to listen to the right music. And if you're not, well, then that's something that they come after you for. This is why I said it seems fascist. It's almost like you're being conditioned, you know, to be ready to go into the world where they're going to determine what you're allowed to listen to, how you're allowed to dress later. So, um, now, Chibi, do you want to comment a bit on how the, the school system, not the school system, but the circumstances in school kind of force the social hierarchy system down your throat? Uh, yeah, I would comment on that. Um, I don't actually want to lay the blame on the school system itself per se, but more so overall on the culture, in my opinion. I mean, I know this, that this topic is about the schools, uh, and they operate within the culture. I mean, that's sort of an obvious. But, uh, um, well, I guess what I mean is that when you have, you know, children automatically 
um, develop a self-image or, or an ego or how, whatever you want to call it. I mean, that's a natural uh, part of development. You, you start to see yourself as this individual. And, it, and, of course, children don't understand, like, they don't think of their... I mean, if you ask a child what their brain is, they look at their brain as something that's added to themselves that helps them think better. But they don't see themselves as as their brain or their consciousness. But they really do develop a self-image naturally and um, because it's, the brain's not aware of its own functioning. You, you automatically see yourself. It, it's sort of like that whole soul idea. And I am going somewhere with this, I promise. But uh, <laughs> I guess my point here is that the children automatically um, tend to develop an ego or a self-image. And what they base that on, um, how they build their image or how it's broken down, that's where they're taking their cues for their environment and from their parents and those close around them. And um, So that's really where the problem starts, I think, uh, this sort of thing. They go to school and they think this is what builds my image and this is how I can build it even higher and even higher. And, and well, here's somebody who... Uh, you know, the whole hierarchy thing starts building from there because that's when you start seeing other people as images as well and you break oh. them down, build yourself up, and and the whole cycle. But it starts very young, but they, the reason that exists in schools as well is because it exists in the public in general. I mean, even if you send your kid, your kid could be homeschooling it, they could still turn out just the same. It, it really depends on the environment they're exposed to, what their, you know, home life is like, and what kind of friends they do interact with. Um, anyways, I guess that was my point. No, I, and I understand where you're coming from. And once again, as I said, it's not necessarily that it's part of the curriculum per se, but the school system doesn't seem to do enough to stop this. And I don't really think this would happen in your home. I mean, obviously, I, I doubt your parents were making fun of you because of the clothing you were wearing that they bought you. And I also doubt that, you know, they were dictating necessarily, at least not in the same brutal way that they do in school, like what you were allowed to listen to and all that other jazz. But we'll get into that later. Now, Bob, uh, what comments do you have about the kind of the social structure system that, get, that you learn in school? This is the stuff you're supposed to be getting, quote, unquote, socially adjusted to, that you must send your children to public school or, or they won't be ready for real life. You know, it, do you want your children to be adjusted to this? Well, it's it's a very scary world to enter, and anybody who suggests that maybe private schools are better off, uh, they'd be happy to know that, uh, or maybe not happy to know, but uh, they'd be surprised to know, rather, that the private schools are usually worse off uh, when it comes to this sort of uh, indoctrination of this very bully-based mentality. And now they use the Internet for some of this stuff. Yeah, that's, that's, yeah, we're going to get into that later, too, but go on. Yeah, so there's a lot of different uh, aspects to this. Uh, for me, it comes down to t teaching people critical thinking and certain skills that go beyond these labels and ad hominems that so many people are used to resulting to. And we see that uh, so often be, be the trend that people don't want to use critical thinking. They rather, you know, make fun of your clothes or make fun of some sort of surface level thing rather than actually think and address issues. So it's become a negative thing in many regards to be an intellectual. Um, and I, I see that as, as a, a sort of a commentary to our world in general these days. It starts in school and then when you get out of school you have the mainstream media continuing that indoctrination. And 
And we have kids being told what to think and being asked to supply the answer that is expected from them. And then if they don't give the, the answer that's expected from them, then somehow they're wrong. Uh, that sort of thing is it's very dangerous. Uh, it sets uh, sort of a standard in people's minds. Uh, so when they get you know, to an age in which they can uh, sort of break free from what the teacher's telling them is the case, they don't seem to think outside the box. Uh, they think that money uh, is something that is real, and uh, they, they think that money is, you know, set in stone, for instance, or they think that 9-11 uh, was what the official story was and, and that there's not more to it. All these different things, to me, are symptoms of the education system uh, and the indoctrination, especially the perpetuation of social sort of norms that if you're not falling in line with that, then, then you're out of the norm. It's, it's just like if you don't watch Dancing with the Stars and you're not a sheeple, then you're just a crazy conspiracy theorist. I see a parallel there, don't you? Yeah, I certainly do. Um, and, and actually, one of the listeners put something interesting in the chat room. It's that he felt that it, it, it's like groupthink training. You know, it's like you're basically kind of being, you know, ushered into this the, the system that creates sheeple because that's essentially what my friends were at that table when they were allowing that guy to pick on me. They were sheeple. You know, they they didn't want to poke their head out of their world only because they didn't, you know, they didn't want to be victimized by it. So um, I'm going to go ahead and move on. Uh, go ahead, Chibi. Well, I would just re respond to that real quick. Uh, I would say that the, where you learn the group think is actually from the children, not the teachers and the principal and the students. Right. Um, so, yeah, I know. We, like I said, we'll get into that later. I, I promise. <laughs> right. Well, and then uh, what the teachers are not doing. I mean, the teachers aren't there to teach you anything about social interaction. They, they really could care less. They're just trying to get through the lesson. And at least most of the teachers I ever had, you know, that don't seem happy to teach, and it's just uh, about getting you to give the right answer as quickly as possible and on to the next class and get these grades done. And, you know, they don't enjoy what they do most of the time either. That doesn't help. But they're not there to teach you how to behave socially. You learn that from the other kids, and where do the kids learn it? Well, from society in general. So that, I guess what I'm saying is that, again, it, yes, it's the school system, but then again, it, it's not like the teachers are... are conspiratorially, like, just trying to brainwash your kids and get them to act a certain way. It's not really how it happens. All right, Jack, did you uh, want to comment at all about how the, you know, the social skills you learn in school, particularly in regards to hierarchy? I mean, obviously, since, you know, in Community Planet, you guys do consensus decision-making, any kind of system that teaches kids hierarchy decision-making is probably a nightmare to you guys. Yeah, um, first I'd like to piggyback on what uh, Chibi just said, uh, which is, you know, to me it gets back to that thing about, you know, we say the political system is broken and the educational system is broken, well, the political system and the economic system. Well, really the school system is is broken too for for so many reasons, but you know, as as GB was saying, it's basically the system is set up to teach people what we want them to know. So it's focused on achievement. It's not focused on uh, on uh, if we, when we describe education in the community planet system. Our question is, how do we bring forth our inner wisdom, the education that comes 
from within, the education of knowing that we are all connected, that everything is one thing. And culturally and, uh, and belief-wise, I mean, a lot of the kids are coming from, if they were really taught that to, to bring forth their inner wisdom, it would be very threatening to a lot of the parents throughout the country because they're not at that place. So they, they may not even support that kind of education. That's why we're proposing that be done on a community-wide basis, that the entire community has you know, can get together and create a really progressive education system that focuses on bringing forth inner wisdom, not just on the part of the people who are going to school, but the idea that we are all in an educational process all the time. The panelists here, everybody is in an educational process. And sure, there are things to learn for all of us at all levels, but let's not just focus on on teaching people what we want them to know so that they can go and pass a test, so they can get a, sto a score, so that the school can get more funding. I mean, it's just so nonsensical, really. And, and the teachers aren't, aren't trained for, for dealing with uh, that idea of bringing forth the inner wisdom and, and, and teaching people about, teaching the students about communication, and it's not their fault, it's just the educational system that just isn't set up that way. No, and I, and I agree with that, and not all of my teachers suck, but um, it, it's, the, the biggest reason I, I keep coming back to this, particularly, you know, just to explain this to you, Chidi, is that the whole crux of this argument was the notion that we have to send our kids to public school or they will not be well socially adjusted. And as you admitted, you know, the, the teachers themselves are not responsible for, trained for, or there for any form of social instruction. And instead, your, your kids learn this mismatch, you know, and the funny thing is, is that a lot of it, where is that coming from them? Is it coming from the kids? Okay, well, where are the kids getting it from? You say society at large. You're right. Well, that's where the consumerism takes hold. You know, this is why, you know, you, you know if you're a kid, you go and you, and you you nag your child. Your, I'm sorry. You nag your mom or dad until they get you fashionable clothing that costs more because you don't want to be you know you don't want to be uncool. You want them to start leaving you alone. You know. So basically, um, that that was the point that I was trying to get at was that if if I'm going to school to be socially adjusted then something needs to happen to the way we educate kids. Because, um, and we're going to get into the, the actually the, the, the biggest, most counterproductive part here, um, and that is uh, how people who happen to be smart get treated in school. Now, I'm going to move on here in the blog. Uh, perhaps the biggest laugh about the idea that public schooling is superior because of the social aspects of it we can always talk about what happens to the unfortunate kids who happen to be smarter than everyone else. I remember very distinctly being attacked once by another student solely for using big words. I had a pretty high vocabulary in school and it was a reason to be taunted or beaten up. If you prove to be smart, a whole slew of slurs come your way. Words like geek, nerd, etc. all fit into this. Isn't it a bit counterproductive to send your children into an institution where they will be forced to interact with kids 
will actually punish them for succeeding academically. I remember not wanting to carry a lot of books home in case I would have to escape from whatever group of kids that decided to make me their victim for the day. My homework suffered as a result. Sports, uh, sports players who do well are revered. Kids who win in the science fair will be lucky if they are not targeted for harassment or, again, violence. Now, I'm going to pause here again because this is kind of an important point, um, and that is that, and then we're going to get into bullying more in the, in the next part. But it's the issue that not only is the social structure at school counterproductive in, in ways that have little to do with education, um, being successful academically is something that can get you targeted and how ridiculously counterproductive that is. It doesn't make any sense to me at all that, you know, that that's supposed to make me socially adjusted in an educational fashion if the fact that I'm doing well in school means that I need to be targeted for punishment by the society at large, meaning the kids at the school, obviously. Once again, noting that obviously that, once again, is also obviously not part of the curriculum. It's not part of the things that the institution are supposed to be working on, but they are glaring problems with the institution that need to be addressed, and we're going to get into that in the rest of the show. But um, I'm going to go ahead and start with you again, Chibi. Uh, the, the idea that, you know, at public school, you know, it, you know, you're supposed to be getting socially adjusted, yet for some reason uh, being smart is actually something that you get attacked for. So go ahead, Chidi. Uh Yeah, I, that happens a lot, and I'll tell you, it's, it's one thing that gets pointed out a lot, but the, I've seen exceptions as well, and you know where I think it's relevant to point out where those exceptions come in. When you do have, say, a rich kid football player, you know, rich parents, dresses well, whatever, and his football player who also happens to do good academically, then they're not so likely to, you know, if he plays football well and, you know, if he can carry all that at once, and they're not so likely to get picked on like the other science, you know, nerds or whatever would. Um, but it's a gradient thing because they might be less cool than than the you know the star jock who who doesn't do any of that. And then of course, if he doesn't show up to the the drinking party Friday night after the game because he's got to do homework or something, he'll be picked on for that to some extent. But he'll still be able to date a cheerleader or whatever. And this goes both ways. You, know, you could have a cheerleader who's also good in her classes. And it won't, uh, it won't have as much of a, an effect as it will for, say, a poor kid who is uh, just a science geek and that's it, and he's just into academics. And that's when you see a lot of that sort of um, teasing that you were just talking about. Oh, well, yeah, but as you pointed out, it's the exception. It, it's not like there's dozens yeah, of kids who happen fair. to be the high school football player and an academic, you know, guy. Right. Well, I, I guess, yeah, it's very uncommon that that happens. I just thought it was worth pointing out that, it, hey, there is a way to sway the scale a little bit if you've if you got money on your side, right? But, uh, right, or if you're naturally physically attractive. Like I said, you can override yeah. a lot of this. Like a pretty girl or guy, for that matter, can get away with a lot. You know, right, yeah. they, they don't have to have necessarily the top fashion or anything like that. Just because being associated with them in of itself has a certain social stratification element, you know. Um, well, yeah, she, he's got a pretty girlfriend or he's or she's got, a you know, a hot boyfriend. All right, now, Bob, um, on this topic of, you know, how counterproductive it is that within our, you know, once again, our, we need to socially adjust. We need to go to these public schools so we can learn that it's bad to be smart. 
Well, you know, it's, it's very similar to the negative connotation behind being a truther these days. Uh, and I was called a truther by Chris Matthews as if that was an awful thing that I should run home and cry to my mother about. Uh, and if I'm a truther, and, and that's a negative thing, being a truther, which is a made-up word uh, that they sort of result to, then what does that make him? A falser, a liar. And it's almost these days more hip to be a liar than a truther. Uh, so go figure. Uh, this all goes back to, of course, critical thinking and reasoning. If you're a student who, who is interested in something other than Britney Spears or some of these surface-level things that uh, were indoctrinated to by, by the media, some of this fluffy, you know, waste-of-time type stuff, then you're also alienated. So I, I see that as, as being a big part of this, is the dumbing down of people. You know, it's almost like in our society, because it's scarcity-driven, it dumbs us down. And if we move to a system of abundance where these sorts of things, uh, these pressures that we see from, from scarcity-based systems aren't in place, I think our education system will be totally renewed and it will, will be extremely different. And some of these different symptoms that we're talking about will really be addressed and changed. Absolutely. I certainly agree with that. Um, Chibi, did you have another comment? I think I heard you queue up, or otherwise I'm going to go to Jack. I didn't queue up, but I actually could say something else that it just popped into my Go mind ahead. about uh, the definition of even being smart. Something right there is a big problem, is what people think it is to be smart in school, what they don't tell you that about critical thinking and whatnot, that it has, it's more about filtering, filtering evidence and really uh, not just believing everything you hear, but actually thinking about it rather than just giving rote answers all the time. And that's, I mean, somebody could be called smart in school. Uh, I think somebody might have said I was smart in school, but I surely wasn't capable of critical thinking like I am today. So um, I just thought I'd, uh, that popped in my head when you were talking about, you know. The right. Smart All of my own critical thinking skills came from my mother. She's the one who taught me to think that way. My my schooling had nothing to do with anything. Um, Mr. Reed? Yes. Um, first of all, uh, because we've heard it a couple of times, I'd like to give Bob some some props for everything that he's doing for the 9-11 Truth Movement because I think that's so important to get that information out there. I personally, here in Santa Barbara with the friends that I associate with, I don't know anybody who believes the impossible um, official story. <laughs> so I have to laugh because it's physically impossible that the official story could be true. So I just wanted to give Bob some props because he's mentioned that a couple of times. And uh, my, I remember as a senior in high school, even when playing on the basketball team, and I was taking a, um, a junior college uh, calculus class because I was really good in math, and one of the other uh, basketball players who was uh, in some of the lower level academic classes, he he would uh, ride me, uh, not unmercifully, but he would ride me a lot for for uh, my academic achievement. And he even nicknamed me calculus in a derisive kind of a way. 
and I kept trying to get his uh, his friendship and and some rapport built with him. And it wasn't until I dropped that calculus class, and they called me calculus, and when I but I dropped that class that he changed his attitude towards me at that point, and we actually became friends after that. So, yeah, I, I, that was my most uh, glaring um, um, you know, uh, episode for me for, for being, uh, you know, right. for, for, you know, being labeled as, as smart. And, you know, it works the other way, too, and, and probably even worse for those who are, who are labeled as not very smart. Uh, I can remember... I can remember taking part in in teasing some people in in, in elementary school. Uh, I feel bad about it. <laughs> I think like, geez, if I'd have been more enlightened, I never would have picked on that that poor little boy because everybody picked on him, and and I just went along with it. And I I think you know I, I could have done a lot better with that. And the same with my brother. I had my older brother wasn't wasn't that bright and I can remember picking on him for for that and you know it's like what was up with my consciousness at the time that I didn't I didn't know any better at the time so I didn't do any better but that I didn't know any better also says something about the whole uh, family and an educational system that I was exposed to that I took part at that time in something that I would never do now Right, and that actually is a, is a good point to, to move on to the next part of the topic because we're going to get into bullying. Um, but, you know, as you pointed out, it was expected of you to take part in that taunting of that little boy. And if you hadn't, you know, then there would have been repercussions. You know, and it, it's interesting you point out that, you know, you, could, you couldn't be friends with that kid until you dropped calculus. It, you, it, it's, it's just sometimes it's just uncanny that, that this is not engineered in some fashion because it just – it, it helps too many people, you know, as far as those of, you know, those who do not really stand to uh, benefit from us being critical and analytical thinkers. Uh, so I'm going to move on now. Uh, let me see here. Uh, and on the subject of violence and bullying in school, what solutions do they offer? Because my mother was poor and my father was well-to-do, at different times in my life I saw both sides of the spectrum. At the school I went to when I was with my mother, we had shootings in or near the school fairly often. In the school I went to with my father, there would be mild violence in comparison. However, I was under mental stress constantly. There was still violence, just not fatal. My father was a cheapskate and, of course, did not want to pay to dress me in such a way that was going to keep kids from bothering me. Ironically, when given a choice, a choice at one point over which place I would rather go to school, I picked the lower-income area. So how effective are school officials at dealing with this stuff? They generally tell you to ignore bullies. Because after all, this is a practical solution when you're locked in a room with these people for five to six hours a day. You can report your tormentors to the teachers with perhaps some temporary effect, or even take it to the principal. They scold them, maybe give them detention. But in the end, I learned that that was only, only was ever going to get these kids to leave me alone I'm sorry, that the only way I was ever going to be able to get these kids to leave me alone was to beat them up myself as publicly as possible, which, of course, you also get in trouble for. 
Thankfully, my mother was very sympathetic to this sort of thing, so when I was suspended for defending myself or even going after someone who would not leave me alone, she would not punish me for it. So why is it so important to do it publicly? Well, just like in our modern system today, politics played into the memory of events. If two kids go at it, the more popular one will be the one spun to have won the fight if the popular crowd can get away with it. I remember very distinctly getting a physical advantage on somebody, you know, who was more popular than me, only to have that story rewritten because that did not fit within the social paradigm. It was, it was literally like the same way the mainstream media would protect, its, you know, protect the, the system. Um, now, I move on here. When I talk about this subject, I tend to think of the two kids who took guns to school and went on a killing spree at Columbine. I remember very distinctly thinking to myself, well, I do not condone what they did, but I have a feeling I know why they did it. The mainstream media did a great job of focusing on schools needing more metal detectors and that kids needed to play less violent video games like Mortal Kombat and Doom. I would also point out that in the schools in the ghetto neighborhood I lived in, uh, we thought it was pretty funny that, you know, that the news found it so important that some kids were shot in a nice white suburban neighborhood when the shootings happened where we lived on a regular basis. Every violent impulse I ever had in school had zero to do with video games that I played or even violent movies that I watched. It all related directly to the way I was treated by the other students and frustration about the fact that the people in authority either were too apathetic or incompetent to handle the problem. Put in a typical fashion, I'm sorry, but in a typical fashion, our society rarely wants to look at the root causes of such problems, particularly if it might mean they might have to gasp, take responsibility for their own part in it. So to be socially adjusted, I was forced to be violent myself or a victim. With the advent of the Internet, you don't even get to escape the taunting when you go home. Kids have committed suicide recently because of cyberbullying. Another thing the school system seems to have no clue how to eliminate, though I have read about more than one case where students get punished for attacking their teachers or other school officials online. Glad we have our priorities straight. To clear that up, basically, you know, with more than one occasion where if you, like, you know, put something in your blog or your MySpace that makes fun of a teacher or a principal, they will punish you. But they don't do jack about cyberstalking, period. And so, so what are the real statistics on this issue as far as which environment is producing smarter or better educated kids? That's what we're going to get into in the final phase of this show. For now, we're going to move on to the subject of bullying. Um, now, Chidi, I'm going to go ahead and start with you uh, in regards to, once again, we have to be socially adjusted by going to public school. Um, what do you think about the issue of bullying and how uh, they just seem to be completely incapable of handling it? Chidi, are you muted? Yes, I am muted. <laughs> Oh, no, Chibi's call dropped. All right, Bob, you go ahead and go, and I will uh, take you from there. Well, this is not Chibi. This is Bob Tuscan, uh, Truth Be Told Radio, theylie.com is my site. And really, you know, it, it's, it means a lot to me to, to hear you touch on these subject matters because I experienced it uh, very similar. Sim I can hardly speak tonight. Excuse me, folks. The flu has got me. Uh, and as the show gets later and later, I get more and more... 
caught up in the flu rather than being able to think clearly. Uh, and that brings, touches on actually a point that I think is involved with this, is the poisoning of kids uh, and the food supply and the medication and the SRI drugs. All these things have created a perfect storm that have really had us uh, that really have us heading towards uh, chaos, and it's really evident in our school system more than anything, don't you think, Neil? Um, well, yeah, for sure. Um, I guess the question, though, would just be about the, the bullying and violence in schools um, and how ineffective the system seems to be able to solve it, and the fact that they blame it on issues like, you know, violent video games and things of that nature. I mean, um, do you, I mean, did you have any commentary on that topic specifically? Well, not necessarily, but uh, to me, that, that violence, you know, of course, there's only so much that can be done. If the students individually focus on their, themselves, you know, there's only so much they can do. I remember times in, in my school career in which I was presented with the bully, uh, and the only difference then was the bully uh, could not hide behind the Internet. The bully actually had to step up to your face, uh, and this kid in class wanted to really... Uh, take out his aggression on me for whatever reason. I must have been irking him throughout the class. And he followed me and he says, you know, find me, find me, punch me. I said, I, I'm not going to fight you. I was a lot like you uh, and others out there, Neil, a, a big pacifist. Uh, and, you know, I said, I'm not going to fight you. So the kid finally out of frustration punches me in the face. And I looked at him and I, I put my uh, hand up to where he punched me to make sure there was you know, no serious problem that it was bleeding a lot or something. And he said, are you happy now? And he, and he walked away. He walked away. Uh, and that stuck with, stood with me for a while because if we stand up to these bullies uh, as a student uh, and we see more kids, you know, out there that aren't uh, standing for the conditioning, bullying, uh, that's so much of the norm these days, I think that's where we'll see change, not from the educators, because the educators, for the most part, individually, they mean well. Uh, the administrators uh, somewhat mean well, but there's only so much they can do. Uh, and the fact that these social networking sites are almost complicit uh, in this bullying these days is very telling, uh, and, and that's subject unto itself. For sure. Um... It's actually, uh, all right, Chibi, are you back with us now? Yeah, sorry about that disconnect. Um, all right, well, we're on the topic of uh, bullying and violence in school. Right, yeah, I, I have some experience with this as well. Um, I mean, in elementary and middle school, uh, it was actually more physical, you know, more like, you know, getting rocks thrown at you and, you know, actually physically punched. But in high school, the way I remember it, it wasn't a whole lot of that. It, from time to time, knocking books out of your hands or, or pushing you or maybe trying to trip you or something, but it wasn't like an extreme sort of violence. It was just this constant sort of taunting, but it was always done from a group, um, like a group perspective. It wasn't like it was just one guy and you could just, oh, I'll knock him out and everything will be okay. It's a whole group of people all laughing together. And, I mean, you wouldn't even know who did what half the time. So it's very frustrating. Um, and I... What you said about Columbine, I have to admit, when I was that age, uh, I was in high school when Columbine happened, and uh, I thought the very same thing, and I, I took it a step farther, to be honest. I was so distraught at that time in my life. I did, I did toy with the, the idea of suicide, and I did uh, 
become very just uh, lost emotionally to the point where I thought there was times where I thought about that sort of thing, like, oh, what, what if I, oh, that would show them if I just showed up and just killed them all one day. And, of course, I, I didn't do it, obviously, and uh, I didn't even really understand fully what it was that was going through my mind. But I have to admit that I had some of the same thoughts, and I can imagine being pushed just a little bit farther with a, a few more triggers, um, being that, that, you know, one of those kids from Columbine. So, But I, it uh, wouldn't have been... Mortal Kombat or Doom? No, because I wasn't even allowed to play those games. <laughs> no, I never played any of those games. I was upset about the, the situation I was in. It, it made life miserable, or so it seemed. I mean, if I had known then what I know now, it wouldn't have bothered me in the least. But, uh, again, we're not really given the proper ways to think and evaluate things. Even socially, we don't understand why people are treating us this way or why you have to act that way. And, so, yeah, you really, especially in that preteen teen area, become extremely lost in this if you're not one of the in crowd. And it can produce uh, some really violent thoughts and feelings and, and perhaps behavior. And, well, you know, it's another reason, like I had said earlier, is that, you know, even your normal pacifist means of trying to get out of these things, you can't ignore these people. They're smacking you in the head or they're punching you in the face. <laughs> I'm supposed to ignore that. You know, and then when you don't fight back, that's the other thing. As I pointed out, my pacifist ways got me picked on more because people knew I was a safe target. You know, it didn't help me in the slightest. You know, um, now I'm going to go ahead and bring on Jack. Um, about once again, we're we're on the topic of you know violence in schools and you know in the atmosphere that of bullying and and not just physical violence, but also emotional you know targeting and, and you know, people go out of their way to you know make kids cry. Well, uh, once again, I have to go back to the, the bottom line is that the system is broken. The educational system is broken, and we need to realize that everything is interconnected. So to just try to, just to, try to fix the educational system and, and the facets of that, which include bullying, is, is still putting Band-Aids on the problem because the – the overriding problem is is the way we've set things up to work in this every person for themselves system. And if we set up a system that's based on the highest good for all and the kind of uh, eco-villages that we talked about in Community Planet, it will address all of these issues and there will be no bullying in a school situation or in a community situation. There are uh, Getting to private schools, there are here in Santa Barbara. We're we're blessed with a couple of really great private schools that uh, I've I've uh, worked with some of the kids in these two schools, and they're just amazing. It's like if I had any kids, I would I would say I I would send my kids to either one of these two schools. The problem one of the problems is, of course, this can't isn't for everyone because these schools tend to cost a hell of a lot of money, um, and and they're small. They're small in size too. I went to a high school where my graduating class was um, 700 kids, and though I didn't see much of that that was going on other than a knife fight one day at school, I 
you know, I, the circles I moved in, I just didn't see much of this, but I'm sure it went on. But it's the system itself that that we need to do something about as a whole. They they try and address all these things with with the issues of bullying and and with the issues of academics and and all these other things, but they don't realize that everything is interconnected. So you just can't look at education in isolation from everything else that's going on in society. No, I, I absolutely agree with that. And, you know, one of the things now that I guess we're going to get into here, you know, in our final half hour, and, and we obviously we can go again if necessary. We can go a little bit over to finish our conversation. Um, now, so what are the real statistics on this issue as far as which environment is producing smarter or better educated kids? The homeschooled kids or the ones forced to socially adjust in our public school system? Um, so I'm going to quote here from a couple of different articles on this topic. Uh, according to a report published by the Educational Resource Information Center, ERIC, and funded by the Office of Educational Research and Improvement, U.S. Department of Education, homeschool student achievement test scores were exceptionally high. The median scores for every subtest of every other grade were all above those of public and Catholic private school students. On average, homeschool students in grades one to four performed one grade level above their age level public private school peers on achievement tests. Students who have been homeschooled their entire academic life had higher scholastic achievement test scores than students who had um, also attended other educational programs. One interesting fact of the study noted that academic achievement was equally high regardless of whether the student was enrolled in a full-service curriculum or whether the parent had a state-issued teaching certificate. The study states, even with the conservative analysis of the data, the achievement levels of the home school students in the study were exceptional. Within each grade level and each skill area, the median scores for homeschool students fell between the 70th and 80th percentile of students nationwide and between 60th and 70th percentile of Catholic private school students. For younger students, this is a one-year lead. By the time homeschool students are in eighth grade, they are four years ahead of their public private school counterparts. Also, homeschool students did quite well in the 1988 and 1998, I'm sorry, on the ACT college entrance examination. They had an average ACT composite score of 22.8, which is .38 standard deviations from the national ACT average of 21.0, ACT 1998. Uh, this places the average homeschool student in the 65th percentile of all ACT test takers. On a different website, in 1997, a study of 5,402 homeschool students from 1,657 families was released. It was entitled, Strengths of Their Own, Homeschoolers Across America. The study demonstrated that homeschoolers, on the average, outperformed their counterparts in the public schools by 30 to 37 percentile points in all subjects. A significant finding when analyzing the data for eighth graders was the evidence that homeschoolers who are homeschooled two or more years score substantially higher than students who have been homeschooled one year or less. The new homeschoolers were scoring on the average in the 59th percentile compared to the students homeschooled the last two or more years were scored between the 86th and the 92nd percentile. Um, this was confirmed in another study by Dr. Lawrence Rudner of 20,760 homeschooled students, which found the homeschoolers who have homeschooled all their school-aged years 
had the highest academic achievement. This was especially apparent in the higher grades. This was a good encouragement to families uh, to catch the long-range vision in homeschool through high school. Another important finding of strengths of their own was the fact that the race of the student does not make any difference. There was no significant difference between minority and white homeschooled students. For example, in grades K through 12, both white and minority students scored on the average in the 87th percentile in math. Whites scored in the 82nd percentile, while minorities scored in the 77th percentile. In public schools, however, there is a sharp contrast. White public school 8th grade students nationally scored 58th percentile in math and 57th percentile in reading. Black 8th grade students, on the other hand, scored on the average at the 24th percentile in math and the 28th percentile in reading. Hispanics scored at the 29th percentile in math and the 28th percentile in reading. Essentially, these findings show that even you know, when parents, regardless of race, commit themselves to make the necessary sacrifices and tutor their children at home, almost all obstacles present in the other school systems disappear. Now, I would also point out that the only reason that this racial issue is even relevant as they pointed out that, you know, when you're homeschooling, it doesn't matter. But when you go to public school, it does matter. Now, what does that mean? What does it mean that, the, you know, that the minority students do better when homeschooled than when, you know, than when in public schools? It's because the fact that they're a minority is something that does, it is an issue. It is a social impacting issue. It is a distraction. You know, um, and also just by, you know, random fate, it just so happens that minorities tend to live in lower income areas here in the United States. You know, I already described all of the violence and things like that that go into that problem. You know, and I was one of those kids because some white kids come from those areas too. I was one of them. You know, and it's, it's kind of a staggering when you think about it. The statistics are in the favor of pointing out that home, you know, homeschooling produces better academic reasoning. Now, we're going to get into why in a few minutes because it's not just about homeschooling. We need to schedule the way, we need to not schedule, you know, design education to emulate what these homeschool you know, situations are doing. We're going to get into that in a minute. Now, another obstacle that seems to be overcome in homeschooling is the need to spend a great deal of money in order to have a good education. In strengths of their own, Dr. Ray found the average cost per homeschooled student is $546, while the average cost per public school student is $5,325. Almost the difference of like, well, look, at 500 to 5,000. Now, yet the homeschooled children in his study averaged in the 85th percentile, while the public school students averaged in the 50th percentile on nationally standardized achievement tests. Similarly, the 1998 study by Dr. Rudner of the 20,760 students found that 8th grade students whose parents spend $199 or less on their home education score on the average in the 80th percentile. 8th grade students whose parents spend $400 to $599 on their home education also score on that average, and once again, in the 80th percentile. Once the parents spend over $500, the students do slightly better, scoring in the 83rd. The message is loud and clear. More money does not mean a better education. There is no positive correlation between money spent on education and student performance. Public school advocates could refocus their emphasis if they learned this lesson. Loving and caring parents are what matters. Money can never replace simple hard work. You know, so this is the you know, in this finding we see that homeschooling helps get around the issues that happen when you're a student in a low income areas. This and a great deal more data on the subject can be found here, and I give a link uh, in my blog. So what do you think is improving these test scores and performance of the students in question? How big of an impact do you think these kids not needing to worry about being taunted or attacked for being smart had to do with their performance?
How much do you think it had to do with their learning environment being free of distractions like fashion or the social pecking order? What about the lack of stress of any of this nonsense our kids are forced to deal with? Do you want your child to be well-adjusted to such a situation? It's another one of those things that people just shrug their soldiers or shoulders about and say, oh, well, that's just the way it is. I guess that's just not good enough for me as a parent. So that concludes the blog. Um, Chibi, what do you think about this data that proves that people who do not have, you know, these kinds of uh, distractions and things like that are doing way better? Well, I think the most obvious thing is that uh, any parent that would choose make the conscious decision to homeschool their child as opposed to whether it be for religious reasons or whatnot. I think that's the most common, actually. Religious parents don't like this. But uh, whatever the reason, it, it shows that the parents are willing to put more time and effort into teaching their children uh, anything and everything. So that in itself, they're getting one-on-one -on -one attention. They're getting probably more hands-on experiences. The type of education you're going to get from any parent that would make such a conscious decision is obviously going to be a little bit better than what you're getting in a classroom full of kids. And then, of course, all the things you pointed out. You know, there's not the all the distractions of being picked on or having to have the right clothes on a certain day or, uh, you know, whatever, trying to fit into a certain social group, which, like you said, is distracting, at least from schoolwork. And, that, you know, being attacked is pretty damn distracting, too. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That said, though, uh, I wouldn't necessarily, uh, I would expect just as much to see children who are homeschooled still come out with a lot of problems, obviously, because the root of these problems is not necessarily just the school system, but the culture in general, but, and even the way they measure IQ, and, you know, there's all kinds of flaws with that as well, but I think the point still stands. If it was up to me, I would homeschool my child as well. A lose big versus lose little scenario in a way. Um, well, yeah, we're going to get into that too, and it, it isn't just about homeschooling in so much as redesigning education. We'll get into that right. in a minute. Um, Mr. Tuscan. Yeah, you can you can call me Bob, Neil. That's all right. Um, but first and foremost, I feel like a teacher. We're talking about school, and you're talking calling me Mr. Tuscan. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, um, what I come away from from some of the things you just mentioned in your blog is that as far as the relationship between money and education, not only did uh, those who we spent more money on test lower, um, but the fact is, is that the more money we spent, the lower they, they tested. Okay? So, um, and I, that came out wrong, but you see the point here, folks, remains the same. The more money we spent, the worse the, sc the scores are and the results are, um, and also, we have to analyze the fact that there are many different forms of intelligence. So these ranking systems that we have are flawed in the first place. What kind of world do we live in where we can't promote people's creative uh, side or we can't understand that certain people learn through reading and other, people's learn, other people learn through uh, experiential sort of things? Uh, in, a, in a world in which we're uh, having to deal with the social Darwinism constantly, and the social pressures are like Jack keeps mentioning, then we do result to these sorts of behaviors. And, I, and it is a symptom of something deeper here. Uh, so it's very interesting. And this subject matter is so important since I'm on the official uh, Zeitgeist, excuse me, uh, Venus Project uh, radio show here. 
I'll mention something that Jock Fresco told me when I went down to visit him uh, in Venus, Florida. Jock told me that the number one thing we can do to change the situation we're in and to try to wake people up is, is through education. Jock really speaks a lot about the importance of education, and Neil, I'm sure you've heard him touch on this uh, before yourself. Uh, it's really a, a crucial thing. Uh, if we don't educate people, if, if education is not something that is you know, considered to be a value, uh, and something like vanity of materialism through fashion are values, uh, we're really um, in a dangerous situation, I feel. Absolutely. Jack? Yeah, the, the interesting thing about the statistics that you read, uh, Neil, is that um, statistics, in this case, unless they don't tell the whole story, unless they take into account all the variables, don't really tell the whole story, I, I would guess that, as, as has been said, that the parents of people who are homeschooled by and large, not across the board, not as a generalization, but, but by and large, they would have a more loving and caring relationship uh, within themselves and, and for their children. So that may well account for the statistics that we that we saw, and it could be that if we have the parents uh, it, and and they go to a, you know, if there is a good private school in the area like there are here in Santa Barbara as options, that we may find the statistics being very uh, comparable. But I think it has a lot to do with that whole, with the whole family environment and, and uh, to statistically compare things without taking into account the whole picture is is very difficult. Um, I think that if if parents have resources to have, like here in Santa Barbara, they have a school called Anna Kappa School, which is really great, and they have another one, which is the Waldorf School, where friends of mine have sent their kids, and again, had fantastic experiences there. And the classes, the school size and the class size are very small. So, and the teachers are very intimate with them. So we wouldn't have the kind of issues that we're that that we're talking about with bullying and with dress, and because these kids have all been, uh, they had a real focus on communication and on the consciousness of, of loving and acceptance because that's that's where they're coming from. I think a lot of times when we have a, a when the people when parents choose to homeschool, a lot of it's out of the economic uh, necessity that there's not a private school that they can afford in their area or there just simply is not a good private school in the area, they don't want to send their, send their kids to public schools for all the reasons that we've described in, in, in here. And so the, you know, the, the good option is to homeschool. And it's not just parents homeschooling their own kids. It's a collection of parents that get together. They have, they have uh, teachers that come in and help groups of students deal with particular subjects. So 
and they go on field trips, and it, there really is, uh, with the good homeschooling, there there are a lot more options than people just thinking like, oh, that just means that the parents are sitting their kids down at home and 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 teaching them things. It's it can be much more than than that. So. But again, you know, to me, we're just talking about a, a broken system and people trying to do the best they can within the broken system. Well, you know, Jack, especially since, you know, uh, we've talked a lot about, uh, in particular, your background in, in helping people learn how to work together and, you know, get along. You know, these aspects are not things that get included in, in our educational system, as Chibi pointed out. You know, and I think what I'm getting at, though, is that the, the statistics prove that in fact, you know, maybe you know that it is that home environment that I think is producing this, and it doesn't need to be at home either. This is where we get into redesigning the way our education system works. When you think about the way that Jacques Fresco describes what school was like for him, he, you know, got special permission to study whatever he wanted, and therefore he was interested in going and studying certain things. And this is one of the things that you know Jacques and Roxanne reemphasize with me all the time: your children, when they are young. They want to know how the world works, and they will ask you questions. And it is extremely important for you as a parent not to get, you know, well, I don't feel like talking about that right now, dear. Can you go play with your toys? Do not do that. Because this is when they're asking you, you know, uh, how the world works. You know, and you can make them interested in these things, okay? My daughter uh, at four, and now even at five, asks to watch The Future by Design, the movie. And The Future by Design for, is by no means a kid's movie. Um, you know, and she would get excited about the, the different stuff that Jacques was building. And I remember one time she looked at me and said, you know, Daddy, I really like Jacques Fresco because, you know, he's making homes for everybody. You know, she didn't understand that he's not actually building anything yet. But, but the point is, though, is that she got interested in that stuff. And anytime she sees Jacques Fresco on television, she goes, that's Jacques Fresco. You know, um, it's really important that we take advantage of this phase of the child's development in particular because this is the argument that I got into with my ex-wife because she suddenly decided she wants to indoctrinate our children. And what I said to her was, look, um, you know, aspects of religion and all that, you know, they can get into that when they're older. At this age, we need to be helping them understand, um, we need to be helping them to understand that, you know, how the world works how to learn about things, how to be able to scientifically analyze things to, to get to the bottom of things. And, and then when they're done, you know, they can make whatever personal decisions they want, you know. Uh, but at that age in particular, you really need to think very hard about, you know, the kind of information that your children get. Now, when you describe the way that uh, we, you know, because we, we've done this show a long time ago where we read the, uh, from the part of The Best That Money Can't Buy that it pertains to education. Um, and how different things will be. It, it's a very different learning environment. Children are encouraged to be inquisitive. Now, every child goes through an age where, as I said, they're asking these questions. And rather than, uh, you know, taking advantage of that, we have a tendency just to kind of let the, the television babysit our children. And if you're not answering these questions for them, somebody else will be. You know, they will find an answer, and it may be the wrong one. So... We need to redesign the way that children interact you know, as far as in schools. We need to emphasize a lot more on, I think, conflict resolution uh, in, in addition to the academic aspects because, 
in, one of the things that this, this, these statistics proved for me was that when you're in an environment that is more friendly to you, the, you will do better. You know, and this is not to say that homeschooling is necessarily the way. I mean, if, if your home situation sucks, if you're not going to be any better off than you would be, you know, uh, in a public school. You know, if you have abusive parents or, or ignorant parents or whatever. And I think that's, that's actually part of the reason why many religious people choose to homeschool is because they want to take advantage of that indoctrination period. You know, they don't want their children being exposed to evolution. You know, they want their children to be exposed to creationism. They don't want their children to be exposed to anything outside of, you know, whatever uh, little uh, frame of mind that they have over the world. You know, they want to be able to make sure that they set the roots in place to be sure that these people will continue on, you know, in their, in their religious beliefs. Now, that's, you know, of course, you know, in their defense, they believe that they're saving their children's souls, of course, from, a, you know, burning in a lake of eternal fire because the guy who loves you so much will throw you there if you don't follow certain rules. I really love that George Carlin bit in the first Zeitgeist film. Um, but overall, one of the things that we proved here was that uh, I did not get socially adjusted by going to school. Uh, I was smart in spite of it, but it was a fight the whole time I was there. And the students who were smart generally were not well treated, and you end up spending a great deal of your time thinking about bullshit. You know, it, it's bullshit. It's fashion all that other garbage, you know, uh, and, and music was part of fashion. That's the other thing. You know, and when I said earlier about your music, it was, it's the same thing. It's part of fashion. You have to toe the party line. So in any case, um, this has been a great episode of E-Radio. I want to thank everybody for coming on. I want to thank everybody for tuning in. Um, I want to thank everybody for your support. Uh, once again, please visit vradio.org, v-radio.org. You can listen to archives of more shows like this, more shows with Jack, you know, more shows with Chibi, lots of those, um, and his amazing introduction. And uh, we have shows with Jacques Fresco, Peter Joseph, uh, Ben Stewart from Chimatica and Historic Agenda, or Esoteric Agenda, uh, Blue Gold World Water Wars, all kinds of great shows in the archives. So check them out. Um, I'm going to bring everybody on one more time to ask for any closing statements you may have on this topic. Chidi, I'll start with you. Uh, I don't really have anything to say in closing other than uh, goodbye and have a good evening. All right, Bob. Bob. Well, that's a closing remark if I ever heard one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. There, there's some awkward silence, but uh, i got to do a little bit better than Chibi with my final thoughts. I apologize. I, I was talking to a muted microphone, as we often do sometimes on, on the Skype broadcasting network. But nonetheless, uh, the education issue, these issues that we've talked about, there's been a, a connecting theme. So I, I'd like to, be, to pr produce a segue to Jack's final statements, because you know, in anticipation for them, I, I commend his his notion of, of the fact that this is more about this root cause. And we always have to address this root cause uh, whenever talking about these issues and any of the symptoms of these issues. Uh, so it's important that we talk about the root cause, and, and that's what I try to do uh, at the same time, talk about solutions. What can we do differently? What sort of things can we change as far as our education system is concerned? Uh, and one of the things we can do differently is get to the root cause of this all, which is scarcity-based control 
and greed and all these different aspects that don't need to be. That's the funniest thing, is that none of this needs to be. It's only because enough of us are asleep and going through the day-to-day motions, not ever having the time, perhaps, or, or the wherewithal, to take a step back and say, oh, geez, man, this is not where we want to be. Uh, this is not the wa- world we want to leave for our children or our children's children. Uh, and I'll end on that note. All right, and your website is theylie.com, correct? Yeah, thanks so much, Neil. Theylie.com, my show is Truth Be Told Radio, and the website ironically titled theylie.com. Who they is, I don't know. Uh, we're not pointing fingers, you know. It's not really about the players. I see that uh, as often the MO of a lot of these Truth Patriot hosts. They want to sit there and, you know, fear-monger you about the, the Bilderbergs or, or the Rothschilds. That's not the approach I take, although... I'm open to, to analyzing various aspects of this issue. So, daylight.com is my website. I thank you for having me on, Neil. For sure, and I hope to have you on in the future. And, you know, the radio listeners, be sure to check out his radio show. Um, it, it, it also, you've got to take responsibility for the kind of information that you expose yourself to. We are the alternative media, so support us, because we're not going to keep doing this if you're not listening. So that brings me to Jack. Any final thoughts, Jack? Yes. Um, first of all, I'd like to say that both Chibi and Bob could be spokespeople for Community Planet because they're coming from such a similar place in terms of looking at the, the overall picture. So nice segue, Bob. Thank you. And uh, again, uh, I just would say that uh, the, the solution for everything is the solution to anything. And I'd love to have a show where it's a call-in show to have people present any problem or any challenge that they want to present. And I would show you how cooperative communities, how, how creating cooperative communities would be the answer for whatever problem is presented. That's because everything is interconnected, and so there is a solution. Um, Website again, communityplanet.org, and um, I, I just love your other two panelists. And, and Neil, you write so well on these blogs. I'm, I must really compliment you. The what you read, I had read them uh, previous to this broadcast, but you write extraordinarily well and coherent, and you tie things together and in a way that um, is very captivating. Well, thank you, Jack. Um, The blogging is actually probably the the biggest, uh, longest, most intensive thing that I do for Fee Radio. It takes a long time to write your own material. That's why I told people about how people tend to have a team that does this sort of thing for them. But um, uh, thanks again, Jack, for coming on. And, uh, you know, uh, thanks to you, everybody, for tuning in to V-Radio. I will leave you with some words from Jacques Fresco and Roxanne Meadows. Be sure to check out communityplanet.org and theylie.com and uh, also vradio.org, v-radio.org. And uh, look forward to the new Zeitgeist newsletter when it comes out because Mr. Reed and uh, Mr. Reed's article and the Open Source Ecology article will also be included. So take care, everybody. And um, look forward to the next episode of V-Radio. This is Roxanne Meadows. And this is Jacques Fresco. And you're listening to V-Radio.